0: All right, everybody, welcome to the Bitcoin Bottom Line. I'm CJ Wilson with Stephen McClurg and Josh, though, I guess. What do we call you, Josh? The, uh, the metrics wizard or the, the, yeah, the analyst? Like crypto historian is also crypto good. Crypto historian. Okay. Oh. And today we're, we're, we're joined by a crypto luminary. So he's so bright, his background so bright that he actually looks like he's in a scene from The Matrix. Uh, Jameson Lopp, who is one of the foremost experts in Bitcoin security. And some of these technical models that we, uh, as Bitcoiners, need to be aware of. So, uh, Jameson, thank you for joining us
1: today on the Bitcoin Bottom Line. You bet. Happy to join you from my anonymous white void.
0: I, I love it. It's like I heard you talk one time, and you were you were explaining that an anonymity is a huge model in security. So the the downside really of being like a, a big Twitter personality or a big Bitcoin personality is people know who you are. So in order to combat that you have to sort of like obfuscate your trails around. Right. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? We just jump right into it um, and then we can talk to s- some of the other security models behind your, your process.
1: Yeah. I mean, a large part of it is just trying not to leak any information about, you know, where I am, where I'm going, uh, you know, more physical security related stuff. Um, the, the the pieces of my operational security that tend to be extreme, are mostly uh, you know government related stuff. Like so, any public uh, property, anything you own that is a publicly registered thing, uh, an asset like a vehicle or uh, land or house or whatever. Uh, that's where it gets really tricky and very jurisdiction specific to make sure that your name doesn't end up on those public records that are very easily searchable. But then going beyond that, actually the easier stuff is just trying to break any ties between your name and other various like online activities that might somehow then be correlated to, you know, rough geographic location. But it's, um, it's a whole field unto itself and uh, i generally tell people if they're interested in going down that rabbit hole to just buy michael bezell's extreme privacy guide i think the fourth edition just came out a month or so ago and it's close to 600 pages and it, it you know seems to add 50 to 100 pages every year so it's it's not getting any easier that's for sure
0: yeah I, I think like as a, as a I, I guess I would call you a celebrity in the space right I mean you're you're always talking at the uh, let's say Bitcoin 22 21 whatever you're at these on you're on stage sometimes doing these things so people sort of know where you're at um, how, how much is the, has your willingness I guess to to just make public appearances and stuff changed over the years or is it just like your skill level has gone up about kind of Batmaning in and out of situations?
1: I'm definitely a lot pickier about public presentations and things that I go to. And um, yeah, I did go to the Bitcoin 22 conference. That was the first one I have been to in over two years. Of course, there was the whole pandemic thing, but I'm getting a ton of uh, requests now that things are opening back up and I'm, I'm turning pretty much all of them down uh, because it's one of those things where you you're you're marketing yourself as being in a specific location at a specific time in the future, so that could definitely be used against you.
2: Yeah. Well, we certainly were glad that you were at Bitcoin 2022. We we, we were all there. It was good to see you there. Um, don't get to see you much, but um, but I think it's been twice in one year. And I I won't I won't, I won't say where the other place was, but um, um, but given that you know what you guys do at casa you you do have physical locations different places you help white glove people onto your platform i'm i'm a client full disclosure and um so 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 how does that work exactly and and how do you guys kind of protect the business while you're trying to protect your clients at the same time
1: well, I mean, the most important thing is that we architect these setups so that there's no single point of failure, and that includes Casa as a business. Now, we have been a remote company since inception. We do have uh, a handful of physical, like, co-working locations, but they're not uh, you know, publicly disclosed. It's not something you, know, you can find on a website or, or through any sort of um, know, people finder or business directory, anything like that. So it would be very difficult for a physical attack against like multiple CASA employees to happen. But most importantly, we have to assume that a physical attack against CASA employees might happen because um, really none of them have the same level of operational security as I. Uh, Some of them are or you know, getting there are uh, certainly better than your average uh, person when it comes to privacy. But um, the most important thing is that you know, even if a wrench attack did happen against myself or the CEO or you know, any high level uh, ranking person at the company, that there's no way that that could lead to any sort of loss of funds or, or you know, compromise for our clients. And that's you know the whole point of having a distributed key setup. So uh, you know that's the sort of foundation upon which the company is built. Uh, I can sleep well at night knowing that even if a you know, worst case scenario happened where um, you know all of our servers got blown up or seized by the government or or what have you, that that would only be a minor inconvenience for our clients and it would not result in them being locked out of potentially their life savings.
0: So I guess, along with that conversation, like when you have different tiers of clients, right, they're going to have different le- levels of Bitcoin, they're going to have different levels of, you know, personal security, financial security, uh, maybe legal entities like shielding legal entities, uh, family trust, things like that. Um, has, has Taproot and the development on Bitcoin in the last, let's say, four or five years, has that really um, given you guys more options in, in terms of how to how to price the concierge services or whatever? Because I think that's one of the weirdest things about Bitcoin is, um, you know, hey, we want to help you be secure. Right. But we have to advertise that we help people. And then we also so there's like this weird thing where you have to kind of put it out there, what you do. But then you don't want too many people to know how you do it, or anybody to really know how you do it, right? So how do you guys balance out your own internal business innovation with like the innovation that the you know that that Bitcoin itself allows you to do?
1: I mean, I would actually say that we're, we're very open and more than happy to talk about how we do it. Um, and, and in fact, on our website we have a wealth security protocol, which is like thirty-five or forty pages of of in depth. Uh, explanation essentially of all of the decisions that went into how we architected the the product and and uh, you know using multi-signature aspects of protocols using uh, multiple different manufacturers hardware devices for managing the keys and then figuring out how to actually distribute them uh, geographically so you know we don't want any of this to be a sort of security through obscurity. Uh, mm-hmm. An attacker should be able to completely understand our architecture and still not be able to do anything about it. Um, on, the, on the sort of taproot, and I guess what you're getting at is a sort of more complex scripting side of things, we're mm-hmm. definitely we're keeping uh, you know, our ears open with regard to what is being developed throughout the ecosystem. one thing that we're very interested in is aggregated signatures because that provides a really big privacy boost for multi-sig users and also sort of transaction fee and data size savings however the reason we haven't already rolled that out and the reason you haven't seen Schnorr rolled out in a sort of general sense is that there's a number of different ways to do these aggregated signatures And unfortunately, most of them are highly interactive, which means that you basically have to have multiple different signing rounds happening. Um, However, we are seeing, in fact, just a couple days ago, uh, a new paper, uh, which was entitled Roast came out, which was a new way of doing the frost type of aggregated signatures, which my understanding is should allow you with one, pre-computed round, which I would think that Casa as a multisig provider, where we're helping coordinate that, uh, we would be able to do that ourselves. And then the user themselves would only have to do one round of signing so that it would basically be the same type of user experience of of what they're seeing right now. Um, Otherwise, it would get really onerous. um, And also, when it comes to any of these protocol changes, we have dependencies, uh, we have software dependencies, we have hardware dependencies. So this is one of the trade-offs of us supporting you know, many different manufacturers for the uh, signing devices. Mm-hmm. It gives us additional robustness in the sense that you're not exposing yourself uh, critically to any supply chain attacks, where you know, there might be some sort of exploit or vulnerability in one of those manufacturer's devices. The flip side of that is you are now limited to whatever the, um, the sort of subset of functionality that all of the devices in your key set can support. So you know, mm-hmm. if we wanna roll out some sort of cool, new uh, aggregated signature scheme, but only Trezor supports it, then we're going to have problems with clients who have like a treasure and a ledger and a cold card. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there's a lot of moving parts, and uh, as a result of that, you know, we're probably never going to be like the f- first early adopter of any of these technologies. Um, but also, we don't want to be a super early adopter because we want to kind of observe the landscape of what's happening in the ecosystem and hopefully let other people make mistakes and shoot themselves in the foot and <laughs> let us learn from their mistakes.
0: Yeah, part of that low time preference thing that Bitcoiners are supposed to have, right? Is like know what the goal is, but then maybe inch your way there. So you're taking just positive steps the whole way and not opening yourself up.
2: One of the things that we always talk about, um, you know, um, myself and CJ, and then and then I tell clients this of Valkyrie. People say, "Well, wait, don't you have funds that hold Bitcoin for people? And don't you have ETFs? And don't you, uh, you know, you, you offer all these, these these services? Don't you use your own funds? Why why do you use a service like Casa? Why do you use um, uh, hardware wallets yourself?" And my answer is always diversification, right? You know. Uh, different people have different levels of skill. You know, if you have very little skill, you just go to Coinbase. If you've got a little bit more, then you, you know, then you might uh, have a hardware wallet or, or 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 use a different service. And and some of these services now don't require a whole lot of skill at all. And and then even for our funds, it's people that say, okay, I've got this family trust. Uh, you know, I've got to report the numbers back to um, you know back to my accountant. I've got to report them. Uh, or it's a corporation or it's a fund that has to have, you know it has to have statements. Uh, and then so, so so some people can only use certain solutions. Some people like myself, I, I like to diversify across a lot of different solutions in case there's a point of failure. Um, how do, How do you feel about that given uh, you know given obviously that's your business, uh, what has this week been like as far as, you know, have you seen inflows? Have you seen outflows at Casa? Uh, you know, what, what, just, just give us your general thoughts on that diversification.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I think in general, the only, the only reason that I have come across that makes sense to me for why someone would use a custodian is if they're in a regulatory position where they're you know, legally required to use a qualified custodian. And so we certainly understand that those type of entities are, are not a fit for us. Uh, we have no intention of ever being regulated, uh, of ever, you know, being a financial provider. We are really a security consulting service. Um, our, I would say our biggest value is actually, um, g- giving people the ability to actually get on the phone with someone if, if you know if something goes wrong or, or, or if they're not sure what to do. Uh, it's very rare to find that level of service in this space, especially for self-custody. Um, almost all self-custody um, options tend to be uh, sort of community-based support or um, the companies are so huge and, and retail-based that if you're trying to get in contact with them and get help you know you might be waiting for days or weeks uh, to get what is probably a templated response uh, that'll be really annoying uh, i've i've run into that myself with a number of different companies in the space um where you can tell that like they're outsourcing their support to the philippines or something and like the support mm-hmm. people aren't even allowed to type their own stuff right they're only allowed to choose from a dropdown down of, of different uh, possible answers to any given query So, um, when it comes to diversification, um, there's, I think there's, there's logical ways of doing it. And then there's other ways that might feel logical on the surface, uh, but actually be a bad decision. So one of the most common forms of diversification that we see, at least in the self-custody space is, um people buying like a handful of different devices or creating a handful of different single signature wallets and then just sort of spreading those around and you know the idea there is that if any given seed phrase or device or whatever gets compromised then you know they'll they'll have lost some portion of their holdings but it won't be catastrophic loss of everything um our take on that is that you know what you're doing is you, you you're taking the old adage of not putting all your eggs in one basket and that makes sense and it you are decreasing the likelihood that you'll have one single catastrophic loss but I think what people don't necessarily realize is that that type of diversification um, actually increases the chance that you will have some small form of loss. Mm. So the type of diversification that we like to see instead is where you have like one logical constructed vault and the diversification is within the different uh, security uh, protections around each of the keys that comprise that vault. So whether that's geography, whether that's um, the the type of hardware that's securing it, really even then the, the potentially physical layers of security Around uh, where you're putting it, whether that's uh, in a safe or in some sort of um, professional vaulting service that is, you know, requiring various forms of authentication uh, to even enter into the building. Um, with with Casa, we have different levels of authentication that we set up for requesting a signature from the key that CASA holds. And for our our concierge level clients, that uh, basically includes doing an audio video call with someone verifying various details, giving them opportunities to provide uh, duress phrases and and so forth, and basically making sure that uh, everything is good on their end. plus then actually having a multi-day waiting period even after authentication happens, just to once again, make a sort of $5 wrench attack scenario less and less likely and be a higher or higher cost. So we do see a number of people and entities that are diversifying between self-custody and third party party custody and i think that does make sense as well uh, in certain situations and um i i myself am in that situation where um while i self-custody the vast majority of my funds i also have funds that are spread out between various services and that are providing me with uh, other functionality and, and sometimes that comes in handy. Uh, it actually came in handy uh, this week when I got a margin call on one platform and uh, I was able to you know, authenticate myself and instruct them to move some funds around uh, without me then having to spend a whole lot of time going around you know, to geographically distributed keys to actually make a uh, on-chain transaction to, to move extra collateral into that service.
0: Yeah. And I think that's where lightning really works really well. If you have like a sort of emergency lightning wallet, you know what I mean? Then theoretically you can move things around from the exchanges that are actually willing to process lightning transactions. Right. So then that kind of helps you a little bit. Um, I mean, obviously there's some super uh, out there like Bitcoin or hardcore things like you could have an open dime or something like that. If you really needed to do a combination of like a physical and a, a quick Uh, one-way transaction or something like that. But I think the thing that kind of freaked me out was as we had the price dip, you know, the mempool gets clogged up because people start moving coins around. And then, you know, people, some people are going to be getting margin called and won't be able to get their, uh, depending on what the length of time between the margin call and the actual action is, right? That's, that's really where there's, there's, I think still, a little bit of immaturity in the Bitcoin space for that. Because like you said, if you have to chase things around, that's a time delay. And if you have a time crunch, you know, we have to figure out as an industry, what's the most efficient way of solving that problem? And sadly, one of the most efficient ways of doing it is is paying by fiat, you know, because you could just sort of call and do a wire if you have to, you know, unwind a dollar loan against a a Bitcoin position or something like that. Um, But if you have a Bitcoin to Bitcoin thing, um, sometimes it's way more convenient because, you know, it's like one sat per bite or something like that. And you just, you know, fire it off, uh, you know, at three in the morning on a, on a Sunday, it's no problem. But other times, you know, you have a mempool clog in the middle of the week and you're like, oh shit, I just have to call a bank and or sell on an exchange and then get wired the money, then wire the money to somebody else or whatever. Um, so I think we're still at that phase where we're going to see some of that stuff developing where you could maybe live completely on bitcoin but i don't know if we're totally there yet because you know not everybody's going to have a lightning wallet with enough money to to really handle their day-to-day spending you know um yep. that's that's what cool, uh, i think so we're getting one, close
1: one interesting aspect about the sort of uh convenience and speed issue with multi-sig is that in our, our default setup, we, were, we really originally designed it for single individual who was then you know, spreading their keys out uh, and, and intentionally making it difficult to spin. That's really it's part of the um, security model. And if it's hard for you to spin, it's going to be really hard for an attacker to spin. Um, However, one thing that we have noted because we have a number of of funds and teams and corporations and and such that are using CASA's team product. Um, It's actually faster and more convenient for a um, multi-sig where your keys are distributed amongst many different people for you to coordinate and and be able to create and broadcast an on-chain transaction even in comparison to a third-party custodian. Because many of these third-party custodians are going to have one or two, if not more, business de- day delays between you authenticating with them to request a withdrawal and them actually processing it. Whereas in a, an optimal scenario, if you have an emergency where uh, you, know, you need to, to move funds somewhere out of a, a shared treasury, within like five or 10 minutes you can have everybody you know plugging in their devices uh passing around the the partially signed transaction and then having a fully uh, completed transaction that you can broadcast out on the network
0: yeah i think that's where necessity is the mother of invention right so as as we run into these things like i was talking to somebody about it the other day when you go to buy a house um through your shell corporation that's named you know obscurely with a symbol in there or something like that in a random state that protects you i'm just you know trying to stay on theme the uh the, the contract is very thick usually right it's like usually there's like all these disclosures and all these things you have to sign in triplicate because there's been lawsuits for decades about these different things right and that's sort of the learning process so by the time someone goes to buy their first house there's been so many houses sold and so many like you know litigious things, that that's why they have all these things in there. So I think at some point, uh, you know, Bitcoin transactions or Bitcoin based companies or Bitcoin teams um, will have will have like more tools in the same sense. Right. More tools to work with because you'll have the security assessor. You'll have a chief Bitcoin officer for the company. You'll have you know various security protocols that are just sort of de facto. That's just sort of the way people do it. Once Bitcoin as an asset class either gets more distributed or more valuable because the stakes are so high. Right. Um, And I think like guys like yourself that have been really like way earlier, had your vision on it the whole way. But new people as they come into this are like, oh, hey, I have five thousand dollars with the Bitcoin or something like now, what do I do? And you sort of have these. I mean, maybe you're not engaged at this level, but when I've been in, let's say, like clubhouse rooms or Twitter spaces or whatever with other people from Casa and they sort of have this the explanation of like, okay, this is like how you get there. Um, And I think people have the goal of accumulating a lot of Bitcoin. But then it's like they have to have the security from day one, like as a as a guiding principle, because otherwise they end up with a bunch of it and then they have no security. And that's really when they're the most vulnerable. Right. Almost like if you buy too much too soon before you really you have your personal security and your your, uh, you know, signing devices and your ability to use all these different devices, because a cold card is much different than a ledger, you know what I mean? Like in terms of the the actual operation.
1: Yeah, uh, I think the biggest issue is people making the leap um, from the sort of traditional brokerage type of system to this new system. So what generally happens is, you know, someone, creates an exchange account and they make their trade and that's it because that's how every other system works. Every, you know, non crypto, you know, traditional, uh, financial system. Uh, they probably don't even understand, uh, that withdrawing is a thing. So, uh, and, and the exchanges aren't necessarily uh, incentivized to, to push you towards the withdrawal features. So, um, there's, there's definitely a lot of learning that's going to happen that's one of the reasons that I think this is going to be a, a sort of generational thing that will humanity will have to sort of absorb uh, over the years and then also because people aren't used to having the same level of, of risk of like you know someone, logs into your brokerage account they're probably not going to be able to completely wipe out your account uh, in a, an hour or so and you have no recourse and and so for that reason you know, people don't understand that the risk is a lot higher and that they do need to think more about security and and that's how you know, they end up just using the same poor cybersecurity uh practices that the vast majority of people are using you where know, reusing passwords uh either not using a two-factor authentication or using really weak two-factor authentication like sms-based stuff and i mean i just heard i think yesterday uh one of the casa employees uh, posted that they had a friend who you know, got into crypto a few months ago and had a coinbase account and they they were just asking them hey is it possible for someone to like clean out my account because they logged in for the first time in six months and balance was zero and someone had just withdrawn everything probably because they were reusing their passwords.
0: Yeah. That's, and that's where you need stuff. Like, uh, you need, you need people like Valkyrie or, you know, Casa or somebody else that is going to have some sort of emergency break. Right. And you can have some sort of human interaction. I think that's, I think that's, what's really interesting is like Bitcoin has this ability to go really fast and to move huge sums of money in very quick periods of time. But it also has the ability to go real slow. You know what I mean? And to, and because of multi-sig um, to force you through these hoops, you know, and I think that's one of my favorite things about having a multi-sig set up personally um, is, you know, like I use exchanges, I buy Bitcoin like at various different places. I sort of try to manage my UTXOs. I have a mining company I try to like, you know, do all this stuff. I, I, I think that you can get so complex with your own security setup that it does get to a point where you might you might be, I, I want to say, like creating a random, uh, what's the word, like a scavenger hunt for your, for your spouse if something happens to you, right? So in that regard, for someone that has a huge technical setup, like how do you manage the, the spouse, kids, will and testament kind of thing. I mean, is it like you have the master, you have the master book, you know, you have like the, the post-its that you got to spin through at the right time and the, the stars, it's like it's all of a sudden where it's like Goonies, right? You know, you got to have the thing and turn the thing and then like the stars are coming through and, you know, uh, one-eyed Willy like falls off, the, falls off the wheel and then that's how you have access to your Bitcoin. I think it's like, we're weird, like we, we love the analog as humans, and we love the the technical as, as geeks, but then like combining analog and technical together um, is like you said, it's a generational thing that like the, the, I don't know, I guess, I mean, technically I guess it's a cypherpunk thing. Right. So to, to kind of want to do that, but I just have this whole sort of like steampunk idea of like, you know, you have this magic dust, you put, put over a book and then it shows you the code to get into the safe, to get into the phrases, to get into your wallets, to do the multi-sig, you know, and, uh hopefully none of that ever happens to my wife but um you know i have to leave like little easter eggs somewhere for her to figure it out
1: yeah so you know that that's a case where like diversification or um over is actually a threat uh this is how a lot of people have lost a lot of bitcoin over the years is that they tried to get cute they thought that they were a security expert and they created an incredibly secure uh setup and in fact, it, it's possible to go too far and create a setup that's so secure that you lock yourself out of it or you lock your loved <laughs> ones out of it. Yeah. And, and really, um, probably twice as much Bitcoin has been lost due to reasons like that than has actually been you know, hacked and stolen. So that's something to keep in mind is that it is possible to have too much security. And to, to create uh, setups that are too complicated, mm-hmm. so that's why we have uh, very specific inheritance plans that we have standardized and you know work with our clients on where, um, you know, there is a treasure map of of sorts, but it's a very simple guide. And mm-hmm. also, you know, we're uh, capable of onboarding your spouse or your beneficiaries. Um, into our platform so that, you know, we can help them out uh, when the time comes.
2: So some of the things that we always tell people that, you know, when it comes to security, there's there's a few simple things, right? One, always use, you know, maybe an authenticator app instead of SMS, right? You know, that's that's a basic one. Uh, we also tell people to have multiple emails, you know, have, have one email that's sort of like your your spam junk type email that anytime that you're, you know, you gotta use your email to, to do something like, you know, log on at a hotel or something like that, which is in itself uh, a security risk, but always always use a, you know, a spam email, but then always create a um, an, an, another email that doesn't have your name in it for any financial transaction. It doesn't matter if it's crypto, bank accounts, it, it, it doesn't matter. And then you know having two laptops, one that's you only do financial transactions on, um, you know, and those are some of the basics. But but if you had one piece of advice, you know, one thing that somebody could do that is that can protect them and their security, uh, what's what's the key thing that you would say?
1: buy a yubi key and use a password manager that you unlock with that yubi key and then you sh- you should not you should only know one password and the only password you should know is the master password to unlock your password manager every other password that you have should be randomly generated and like over 20 characters long uh, that's that's going to protect you from some of the most common stuff because you have to assume that every service that you create a login to is going to get compromised and that those credentials might get leaked. And then um, this is something that we see all the time or really anyone who runs an online service, every once in a while, whenever there's a big data leak, you your service starts getting hammered with just lists and lists of all of these leaked usernames and passwords because people are just trying them they're like you know there's a good chance that at least like half a percent of these usernames and passwords are getting reused on other common services so you know uh, humans are a very bad source of entropy so you know, don't create your own passwords
0: so along those lines though there's something to be said about the the nature of your passwords in the sense that the longer they are the harder they are to hack right and so um some of these, some of these uh, apps or web services or whatever, they have like a limit to the amount of characters you can use or they limit you from using other characters. So it's almost like in a way they're, they're broadcasting how they're at some point going to get hacked because they, they have a limit to the, they have a top end limit to their security protocol. Right? So if like, I, I remember a couple of years ago, there was like a like an iCloud hack where all these celebrities, who's it was their emails were basically like first at me.com or something like that. Um, you know, like, like no obfuscation of their email at all. It was just literally just first name last name. And, um, they had their stuff hacked to the point that their iCloud photos were being put online. Right. And people were like up in arms. They're like, Oh my gosh, there's naked pictures of like these, you know, actresses and stuff like that. And it's like, well, You know, the whole point of Bitcoin and I mean one of the great points about Bitcoin is it obfuscates your wealth so that you can have a ton of money or no money and then like nobody really knows how much you have at all, because if you're doing everything right, then it's always a mystery, you know, because you don't have just one huge wallet that's got everything in it that you're like, oh, I need to pay for, you know, tacos. So here's like, you know, uh, 50,000 sats coming out of a wallet that's got 100 Bitcoin in it or more or whatever. But um I really think that that like we're at this weird meeting where like the the there's a lot of plebs that are coming into the to Bitcoin and they're, they're dollar cost averaging and they're they're coming up to a point where they're about to transition from you know having let's say uh, a million sats to ten million sats or ten million sats to a hundred million sats or something like that and so they're getting to that point where they're especially with Bitcoin being as cheap as it is today uh, and the economy being crazy people are kind of squirting more money into Bitcoin as they go, as they learn more about it. And so there's going to be this really weird like like ramp, I think of exploits that that happen because, like you said, the human is the soft target. Right. If their password is, you know, big boobies one, two, three on every every service they use or like uh, what's the kid from uh, Kyle from Wisconsin or whatever, um, you know, it's like you know, you, you have to think about the, the Bitcoin that you have today could be worth 10, 20, 100 times what it was worth today, one day. And if someone has your password now, then they can get in your email now and then they can, you know, like stay with you. And and there's there might be a whole benefit for hackers or whatever else for hacking people today, but not exploiting them today because their Bitcoin's not as not worth as much. So I think like that game theory is so interesting because it's like there's all these things tumbling at the same time um so i think like uh as the more you get into it you get like the sort of conspiratorial mindset you you sit there and think like well, wow, i really have to take extra steps you know um because otherwise and, and and you know and cut emails off and stop using that email for everything because if you have one email for like 15 years there's a i mean the longer you have that email the, the higher the chances that someone's going to get into it and if you have some sort of reset button or whatever that they can go through your email to get, then you're going to get hacked at some point, right? As a person. so Yeah,
1: I mean, that's it's good cybersecurity 101 is treat your, your email account is actually your most important account because that's how hackers tend to get into all of your other accounts, you know, resetting passwords and whatnot. Uh, so... I would also, you know, recommend, you know, once you get that YubiKey, use that YubiKey for everything, especially uh, your email service, uh, and then this comes down to, you know, there's like three different types of authentication. There's um, something you know, like a, a secret, like a password or a private key. Uh, there's uh, something you are, which is like biometrics, and then there's something you have. And something you have is is like a YubiKey, um, you know, a, a a physical device, so that you know. If, if you have that form of authentication, nobody out on the internet is going to be able to, to grab that and then impersonate you. And so mm. that limits your attack surface down significantly from everybody on the internet uh, to someone who is willing to go to the extremes of, you know, physically uh, coming to your location and, and taking control of that device.
2: Yeah. Well, we really appreciate you coming on Jameson. This is the, uh, the end of the Bitcoin bottom line. Hope we have you back soon.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: And Jamison, you, you provide a lot of really cool
0: resources uh, on your website. Can you tell everybody about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, uh, last I checked, there's over 1500 links to different resources in a couple dozen different categories. It's very easy to find the site. It's just bitcoin.page. And that'll take you directly to my resources that I maintain on a, a daily basis.
0: Well, uh, thank you so much for like what you provide for free, really. The open source aspect of Bitcoin is so cool because it brings out this, this really interesting skill set. And... Um, uh the I, I personally have gone through there a lot and and you know, tried to double check resources and stuff like that so I, I really say thank you as a as a bitcoiner that's never met you you know in person or whatever and might not ever meet you in person uh because of ghost protocol right then um you know it's just keep up the good work man and and you know i definitely uh i think from a lot of other people a lot of our listeners um, they're going to take their security a lot more serious. You know, they're going to be a lot more secure with their life and their Bitcoin as a result of this conversation and, and, uh, you know,
2: what you do. Yeah. We really appreciate it.
1: With uh, great sovereignty comes great responsibility.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, thanks everyone for joining us on the Bitcoin bottom line. This is Stephen McClurg, my host CJ. And thank you, Jameson.